Okay, well, um, we have, say, different views of the world. And some ways of taking the world are reasonable, perhaps they're right, and some aren't. And how we should think about the world depends, in part at least, on experience. And you mean that in a strict sense that some views of the world are wrong? Because you said they aren't. Yes, some views of the world, I, I think they are, some views of the world are wrong. Okay. And some ways of taking the world are unreasonable. I mean, suppose I were to say to you that there is a hippopotamus in this room. Mm-hmm. That would not be a reasonable belief. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that's not a reasonable belief is because of the kind of visual experiences we are having. Right. So again, that justified true belief, being knowledge and so on. Yeah. I, guess, I know yeah. there are other problems there, but... Hmm. Yeah. I guess my, 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 my own concern has been less with knowledge, what we call knowledge. Sure. But how, how is that we should think about the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm interested in, in logic. So right. I'm interested in proper and good reasoning. Right. Uh, some of her reasonings don't depend upon immediate experience. Mm-hmm. If I'm sort of doing a mathematical proof mm-hmm. or giving a mathematical definition, mm-hmm. say of prime number, mm-hmm. if I define prime number for you, that doesn't depend upon my present experience. Mm-hmm. But some of her reasonings depend upon our present experience. Some of the concepts that, we, that, that I may introduce may depend upon my present experience. So I might say, well, let me call this piece of paper Bill. Right. Well, that definition... Of, of this new of, of the name depends in part on experience. Or suppose I were to say, let's call that color red. That depends on experience. So uh, I've been I've been concerned to understand how it is that the goodness of a reason piece of reasoning depends upon experience. A human child who's exposed to Sanskrit being spoken around her—that's what she will pick up. Right. So right, I don't right. see. I mean, what, what makes language reflexive? Is, is it even possible to answer that question? You know, I think this idea of displacement, the ability to talk about not just, you know, what's needed for survival, what's here and now. Mm. I think that must be the point at which you can talk at one level up, right? You're not just commenting on the things that you see in the world. but you're, And of course, it's related to our cognitive capacity to think of alternative ways of being, right? Like mm. possible worlds or, you know, this. We, everything else could be the same. I can change one variable and we can all imagine that, right? So I think that is what probably gives us the ability to stand back from and use the same language to talk about how else it could be or why it is the way it is, which is perhaps, again, something distinctive from you know, languages of uh, other species that are basically driven by survival needs of, not all of it, I think, but still primarily. But why that is the case must be about our... Do you have a clue? I think it is basically because natural linguistic unit can refer to a thing that is one step below it. One step below it. One Mm. step below it. So, for example, when I say Ronit, it's a word, but it doesn't denote itself. It denotes you. So I can talk about the word Ronit. So you see, I, so I go one again, step up. So it's symbolic. Right. Because it is representative. And I, in, in artificial language, I don't know how to create this. So I need to have some meta language and stuff like that. But in natural language, but I can wh- wh- talk. Wh- why, why can't object-oriented languages do this? That I don't know. Why uh, artificial languages do not have the merit of uh, a natural language? It doesn't sound natural for an artificial language to talk about the words of its own stock. For example, that's the reason you have first order predicate logic. And second order predicate logic, where a predicate talks about other predicates. Right. Where a predicate variable ranges over predicates 
in a lower order language but in and uh, this can have infinite loops right you can just keep going on to nth order predicate you logic. can you can yeah. you can have nth order predicate logic the reductionist strategy that he talked about seems to be something that wouldn't work in biology and in fact what he, what he was pointing out actually opened up some some other interesting question and gets connected to both emergence in some way and uh, another feature of uh, different kinds of phenomena that we come across and i'll give you examples is uh, one is and this is uh, phrased as downward causation sure okay downward or backward causation uh, yeah. the backward is different okay at the at the at the gross level you can have backward causation downward sure. causation is that system so, impacting the part system in, impacting the part the whole impacting okay, the part right. yeah and uh, this actually then undercuts the reduction is program yes. because in the reduction is program the causality moves from the parts to the to the whole to the whole mm. so this this is something which which would rec- uh, probably have a great impact in the way the science actually would be done or is being done uh another thing that i want to put on the table and i hope shobhu tells us something which is if you look at the nano entities mm-hmm. the nano entities had sort of thrown us completely off the track because you have nano particles whose properties you just couldn't predict uh, that it would be such and such i mean it is extremely surprising and one needs to work out whether a reduction strategy would work or and because this is not an emergent property kind of a scenario right we yes. are going down the level yeah. to the yeah. microscopic and yeah. suddenly you find it has properties which the gross objects doesn't have and its individual entities don't have yeah. so it's a kind of a meso level system and uh, i hope shobhu sir tells us how the phase is sort of grapple with this very interesting sets of issues and this will also get connected to the biological system mm. right i mean there mm. there are therefore skills mm. that's involved I have a different way of looking yeah. at the whole thing. Nobody disputes randomness, but there's a first order argument and a second order argument. The first order is based on actually observation. Just as scientists observe subject-object relationship and then come to certain conclusions, the philosopher also looks at the world, and that's the first order observation wherein they come to these conclusions. Now, certainly, and one of the arguments which all philosophers use is. you may have hundreds of cases where the sun warms the stone but there could be another occasion when the sun does not warm the the human induction yes. problem yeah yeah exactly yeah. but you may not be observing it there's always a hypothetical situation where this can happen now randomness actually is included in the table of philosophers arguments but we separated as the first order argument and second order argument no but the problem is that connections and causality need not go we, hand yes, in hand certainly, certainly. so when you say there is a cause of a phenomena of course you are insisting that this leads to that no it but is well, not well yeah, well yeah. It, it is or it not mandatory. the difference is causality should not be seen as the same as trigger no trigger is what very triggers the phenomena yes. need not necessarily cause it shashi we'll go to you on this how how okay, it triggers so, different <laughs> causes Yeah, I mean, I mean, is uh, it the same as proximal and ultimate causes, or it's something else? So, in a quest for looking for a cause, right? And I think we may not have uh, a clear understanding of the ultimate cause of phenomena, but that's basically uh, uh, doesn't mean that there may not be a trigger or a cause at the very beginning, 
right? Let's say take the cancer example. Now, if you ask the cancers, so let's say all cells which are dividing, they are susceptible to become cancerous, sure. right? And not necessarily the one which is completely differentiated. A muscle cell would not become a cancerous. A neuronal cell itself would not become a cancer because they have become terminally differentiated. It is unlikely that they get reversed into uh, dividing cells, right? Sure. Then why some cells become cancerous and some individuals develop cancer, what Rukmini was talking about, is because there are maybe certain mutations. Those mutations make these cells to proliferate much more than the normally they proliferate. And is, there, also, is there, so just, just picking that word mutation, is there a way to say that there is a cause for a mutation or it is by definition Brand a probability so event, a random event? It's a, it, event. There are two, the, the, okay, so the, the cause, the, again, how you explain it, right? Sure. So, when DNA is copied, when the cells are dividing, DNA has to be copied mm -hmm. and it's a chemical reaction, purely a chemical reaction. Sure. Right? And during that Pairs chemical of, reaction, there right. are some errors. And errors are, you know, part of the system, right? With an energy exchange that happens, there is an entropy builds, an error develops. And that error, it's, it's bound to create very different variations or changes, right? And in, in this case, where the chance factor or the randomness or probabilistic factor is, you wouldn't be able to tell you, tell, tell which a cell, priori where, a priori, where this cell will develop happen. this particular mutation or this particular gene will have this mutation and that's how it becomes, but is there an cancerous. element of, uh, that's the element of randomness in chance. However, is there an element of adaptation during mutation? So if, if yeah, the environment true. has changed, so, for example, a cell, for example, a bacterial cells which are continuously exposed to radiations, they may adapt a newer mechanism which increases the rate of mutation. Rate of mutation. Rate of mutation. Sure. And that may help in survival. So, more the diversity a species would survive better. So, the rate of mutation could be impacted, is always impacted by yeah. the environment. There are many, the many organisms which have rate of mutations is higher than the normal. Mm -hmm. And there are also, there are certain pockets of the genome which have a what are called mutational hotspot. Mm -hmm. There's also an evolutionarily uh, evolved phenomena where certain types of genes actually are mutated much more frequently than other genes. And is that a gene so we, this is many times scientists thought that there is actually a bias towards those genes. There may be the mutation itself is not a random thing. Right. Right. It is still a random. The mutational hotspot that they call is simply because of variety of different chemical structures that are built into it. There's error need you know becomes more but those reasons are entirely intrinsic or does it have to do with the environment or the context environment context always fair enough so the place where i want to link this to what kumar was saying was this time stamping kind of thing so when a giraffe's neck has to move and it's so clearly for coordination and and i know the fault tolerance is probably better and it can there is more flexibility there isn't there any confusion about when sig the first signal and the second signal and the third signal and the n nine millionth signal came by? Or you know what I mean? Like, how does... Yeah, so uh, I think, so that is where your brain comes in to mm. some extent. Okay, so what happens is that your brain sends, you know, so there is a, a you know connection between your nervous system and your muscles. Okay, so when your brain sends a signal that, you know, the, the neck has to move, there is a various cascade of events. But finally, what happens is that your cells, for example, the, the muscle cells may get bathed in calcium. And that calcium is a molecule which uh, can basically diffuse around everywhere. There are other mechanisms. I'm sure. just giving you one example. And that is like a kind of a master regulator of 
all these little little molecules which to some extent may fluctuate but overall they will do you know what they're supposed to do and that's how you can relax and contract your muscles then again this because you know I'll, I'll bring this up because we talked about uncertainty this is a major problem at these length scales that i'm talking about and i repeat this because uh, you know you, let's say we think about a machine uh, what is a machine to you and me it's a lathe machine let's say you know lying in a workshop right that lathe machine does not care whether the temperature is 22 degree or 25 degrees right okay but the same machine inside your cells uh, the kind of energies the, the amount of work that they do are a little bit more than thermal energy scales okay so there if the temperature changes a little bit then you you know things will change a lot so that is one of the reasons why you want to maintain your body temperature at 37 degrees that's why there's homeostasis oh, yes, but so, that yeah. being said it is remarkable that there are organisms which live at 100 degrees centigrade in deep sea vents they're using some form of these machines only right right so those machines have now adapted to work at 100 degrees centigrade right so so they they can you know they they can filter out this thermal fluctuation i don't know what exactly they do okay so uh, this uncertainty is very real but the, the, there are mechanisms to you know overcome it i wouldn't say i'm surprised um that they exist i mean um the type of philosophy that i've worked in has been primarily interested in the structures of experience and in so far as uh experience seems to be fundamentally conditioned by time so we always have a relationship to the past and relationship to the future uh retentions of the past and anticipations of the future so that this seems to be part of human experience that's irreducible a lot of the work that i've done uh actually is sort of contesting that structure to some degree because it's been I'm much more interested in unpredictability and what cannot be anticipated and um so what's, that's why what, so what's the answer to that what cannot be anticipated Well, I mean, there's certain words we use to describe that. The one that be primary be an event, because mm-hmm. it seems that just the fundamental meaning or basic meaning of the word event in English, as we use it, uh, is that it would have to be something novel, not seen before. I mean, I don't, I don't think we would call an event something that we could predict or re- even recognize. So um, the criticism that uh, come out of the philosophy I've worked on, but I also engage in this, has been to criticize the the very idea of recognition. so that a, a genuine event uh could occur but also would contest uh recognition and you can see this is um quite important in certain ways in terms of political situations uh because you know we have terrible uh condition problems with racism in the United States so part of the racism is the recognition of people as something that we can categorize so to introduce events and a lack of recognition should liberate those people from the sort of categories and prejudices within which Americans white Americans like me place them in it's very interesting that that chaos itself can be produced is a part of an orderly system by orderly system chaos i don't can be mean created exactly i don't mean by orderly in the sense of a physical system but an orderly system in the it sense of produce human beings it can be produced exactly can be pro- and what is really interesting is why are we so interested in prediction there is a reason because we human beings want to make lives better for us we want to be able to kind of adapt to the situations around us and so if we can kind of know certain law bound behavior in nature you know in reality then we will be able to modulate our own behavior in order to kind of gain from that in order to kind of make life better for us but remember so if we include ourselves 
into the system. Remember, when we are talking about these systems, we are carefully excluding ourselves out of the system. That's and that's point. the genius of the scientist. You know, this is what science is. It's the genius of being able to exclude yourself out of the system and observe it in some way. But if you kind of include yourself into the picture and call that a system, then think of the laws upon which it is based. That is a great scientist, you know, or a great mathematician or our interlocutors able to kind of study something then having studied that, able to kind of use or apply those law bound or those laws that we have been able to discover for our own ends, for the, for the case of a washing machine or for, you know, <laughs> and that itself is something, I don't know whether that itself can be a part of a predictable system, you know. So this thing of being able to kind of apply a law in order to generate a certain effect, how do we understand that phenomenon? Th that's something that really fascinates me. I don't have any answers here. I just want to kind of bring this to bear upon us, you know. So chaos can be created, you know, yes, yes. very robust kind of way. Yes. See, normally chaos is not robust in the sense that if you change a parameter, it can be chaotic. It can run away from there. It can, it can also go away from that into a periodic behavior. So how do you create robust chaos? Uh, but we have found that if we have a system Essentially, that is, you need large basins in Rama's yeah. terms. No, no, not, not exactly that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a system that is non-smooth, mm -hmm. then under certain conditions, there can be Locked chaos in. that is robust. That means if you change a parameter, still it remains chaos. Yeah, it's not so much a cluster as it has an internal structure. So right. these events typically have, unlike objects in the world, uh, we think objects have a lifetime, mm -hmm. but typically language doesn't assign objects temporal properties in the way uh, it assigns events temporal properties. So That's events so you know, through mechanisms like tense mm -hmm. and you know various kinds of auxiliary verbs like will, mm -hmm. able to indicate the future, for example. And then there's also stages, you know, whether an event is completed or ongoing. So you have uh, grammatical mechanisms. This is called grammatical aspect mm -hmm. where you have things like uh, you know perfective you know it indicates the uh, event was completed you know he uh, whereas you know he, he built the house whereas you could indicate a, uh, that something is ongoing uh, so different languages have a way of in encoding that you might use a progressive form like he was building the house right. it doesn't indicate that it's necessarily been completed uh, so these temporal properties of events their substructure and the various reflexes mentions so, in the so text the, these are annotated in corpora and so you look for specific you know evidence in the corpus for events and then you mark them up uh, using so annotation is the first step yes yeah you have to negotiate the terms of comparison you have to agree upon how I'm going to be comparing objects so let's go back to the plane example that's an object that has many different incarnations in mathematics mm -hmm. it's an analytic object in the sense that you can talk about functions on it and you right. can talk about continuity and right. differentiability right. but it's also a geometric object right. because you can talk about measuring distances between points now the geometric and the ana analytic objects are very closely related because when you talk about continuity you need notions of closeness and that comes from the geometry and the measuring distance maybe less familiarly it's also an algebraic object it's a group uh, in the sense that there's an op if you take two points in the plane there's an operation you can do with them you can add the coordinates under that operation it's a group it's also a structure called a vector space and depending on which of these incarnations you want to focus on the things you compare it to are very different and are they mutually translatable to each other it depends so with the geometry and the analysis it depends on the type of question you're asking mm -hmm. but if you're looking at it as a vector space and you're thinking about it in an algebraic 
terms, maybe the parts of when you're thinking about continuity is not as interesting to you. Maybe you want to think about it more in terms of, well, how do I compare one object where I can add things with another object I can add things, rather than I want to compare one object where I study functions to another object where I study functions. You really do have to negotiate your terms before you start. I was really struck by um, your statement, Jayadev, about the exciting kind of things happening in liminal spaces, because in literature <laughs> too, you know, we uh, it's somewhat of a fashionable term, liminality. But uh, this is what I've found that, you know, sort of liminal spaces is where some of the most exciting experiments mm-hmm. with literature, and especially with Persian in India, in the early history, that uh, were at the centers of, um, say, cultural production or literary production, there's a lot more sort of pressure to be conservative and follow traditional models. Um, But away from the center, there are influences from, um, you know, different kind of local practices, for instance, vernacular languages, etc. That's where you find that some of the most new kind of genres have come up in in the Persian literature. What what would an instance be? Uh, An instance would be we have uh, in, you know, 11th century Lahore, a poet, uh, Masood Saad Salman, um, who was was born in Lahore, but of parents of Iranian origin, uh, one of the first generation of poets. In his poems in Persian, he only wrote in Persian, although supposedly, I mean, Khusro later said he also wrote in Hindi, which <laughs> meant any Indian language. At that time, we don't know what it was. But in his poetry, we find some of these genres that do not belong to the the kind of the canon of classical Persian literature. And yet they don't really, they have some similarity to uh, broadly Indian literature, Upper Brahmsa or Sanskrit. For instance, Baramasa, you know, uh, poems around the different months. Right. You know, um, that, that was a very... Uh, popular kind of form uh, in many Indian languages, especially in uh, folk literature. And we have a kind of Baramasa in Persian. Now, this is unthinkable. So, so would that in, be just an adaptation of a certain genre from one another? It's not that simple, mm. right? So that in flavor, I mean, uh, you know, it, the language, etc., um, uh, even the the kind of the form that the poet uses, meaning it's not a ghazal, but a more technical form, but that it's purely Persian. But the idea to have a collection of such poems grouped around the months of the year, this was not there in Persian. And it's got to have come from this sort of the liminality, because this poet always keeps, on the one hand, complaining that I'm stuck here in the, you know, the, the kind of the backwaters of Lahore and Jalandhar, whereas the center is Ghazni and, you know, at that time, all these places, Bukhara. But yet amazing things you know, came about right. in the liminal kind of space uh, right, right, that he right. inhabited. That's yeah. very interesting. So you always think of, you know, well, in the making of a film, you think of a narrative structure and that narrative structure could be based on any particular theme or idea that the filmmaker may be working with. I may be making a silent film that is looking at the shot of an ocean and I still feel there's a narrative arc to it that the sea was probably calm and then it picks up and it gets a bit violent and then it becomes calm again. Okay. Right. So you're thinking of film as a form of storytelling and narration in that sense is when it kind of makes an arc in meaning and communicates something. So an instance like this where you look at the ocean, this can both be written about, let's loosely call it saying, and it can also be shown. So somebody like you could turn up there with a camera and with some skill 
also just show it without saying anything of yeah. course even that yeah, is a certain yeah. kind of saying yeah. Mm. yeah and i think you know there what becomes interesting for me is to think about medium specificity yeah that's such know? a beautiful thought there yeah. is something that writing does there's something that fiction writing does there's something that poetic writing does there's something that essay writing does and likewise there is something that the medium of cinema does and within the medium of cinema a certain kind of film does something so there are different kinds of films and they do different things mm. what does the medium of cinema do well in in terms of thinking about medium specificity um you're thinking of a medium that works principally with images and sound it's an know? image sound amalgam in a amalgam sense. if we just go to a slightly simpler level one can start with the assertion or with the belief that something like the cinema Mm-hmm. on the screen usually i mean the way what you expect from it mm-hmm. is to give body to even abstract things like emotions give but body abstract to things like huh, a mood that's very interesting and right. so on and so affect and so on and so forth mm. so that there is something that has a physical shape that has a physical i mean it can be a, an image of a landscape even clouds gathering on the sky it doesn't have to be a body in the sense a human of a human body but so in a sense that's making the abstract somewhat less abstract that is what i'm saying that right. it is the standard normal belief is that cinema is about bodies and i think it, there is there is truth in it what do you mean by that i mean this is that i just uh, the example that i quoted if you just think of an image which doesn't necessarily have a human body or an animal body but just the nature itself or landscape itself or the sky itself and so on if that conveys something to you let's say a sense of desolation to you a yeah. sense of impending gloom or a sense of anxiety to you or sadness to you whatever it does it actually the sky embodies something for you but you see this is already abstract in the sense that in any linguistic operation I mean, this is also some sort of language it's yes. not a verbal language but yes in in any language if you use a sign for something else it's a signifier it's so. a, yeah if you use a see, since you use the word signifier mm. that sort of linguistics where it mm. became popular the word signifier they understand the word signified what the signifier signified spice yes the signified as not the thing so if i say room the signified room is not this room yes. it should be as a dictionary word it should be able to signify many rooms all sorts of rooms right therefore the signified is a concept in my head that's beautiful yeah so it's it's actually yeah. they are so thoroughly entangled with one another the instance of so called concrete mm-hmm. bodies mm-hmm. and the instance of abstraction because we are already in the aesthetic realm in the realm of representation right. if you talk about cinema media whatever they're so deeply entangled with one another it's very difficult to separate them and it, the more curious thing to me is that some something that we often take as the body the physical presence of something for me on the screen if you think slightly differently or look at it from a different point of view might turn out to be an abstraction of something else so this play if you like right. between two levels never stops how universal is it i mean the idea of the implicit i yes. think it is contextual so i completely agree with uh, her uh, so far as um, uh, the idea that there cannot be an a historical universal implicit hmm. what is implicit in a certain situation has to be context and uh, uh politics dependent in many ways so i was actually thinking a little bit about say for example somebody like jacques rancière who would talk about something called the partition of the sensible mm-hmm. where he's saying that in every political situation there's a certain uh partition of what is visible sayable uh perceivable 
in a particular situation and what is beyond the visible, sable and perceivable, right? And that constitutes a partition of the sensible at that point of time. So what lies beyond that partition, Roncia would suggest, has everything to do with the social and political context, what can and cannot be said, what can even be perceived in some senses. So, I mean, really... And this is, this is by individuals or by, by communities? By, by communities, both. by communities. It cannot actually be uh, the individual who decides what becomes sable and perceivable in a particular situation those are so in at, at one point Roncier also says that the only truly political question at any point of time is the question which um, in fact cannot be asked mm. in a particular situation and that is not decided by individuals that is decided by the particular let's say I mean to refer- you mean it in the sense of taboo or you mean it in the sense of inaccessible uh, both. In some senses, it's a conscious taboo and other cases, it is also just the, the formulation of that question becomes impossible at that point of time. So this is something that various cultural anthropologists would have talked about. Say, for example, when you go back to somebody like Clifford Geertz, you would find him right. saying that culture is actually a set of control mechanisms. It's a recipe for how right. we act. So for any particular situation, we might have multiple possibilities, but even the possibility that we can envision are entirely controlled uh, uh, by the culture that we belong to. So what we can imagine, our freest choice is still controlled by culture. So what lies outside that is perhaps what is implicit. So it's determined entirely by a particular context.